One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to How to Be Sound, a conversation between me, Rosemary McCabe, and someone I think or suspect is probably sounder than I am. A lot of the time I've met these people, so I can say for sure that they're sounder than me. But today is a first meeting of sorts with writer and journalist Lynn Enright, whose book Vagina, A Re-Education has just been published. I've just finished reading it. Lynn, thank you so much for coming on How to Be Sound. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me a bit about the book. I mean, there is a part of me that's like an Irish woman, your first book, it's called Vagina. What has the reaction been from your family and friends? How has this whole experience been? It is, I think it is funny when somebody says, oh, oh, you've written a book, what's it called? And you have to sort of say, Vagina, a re-education. And then I quickly kind of segue into, um, it's about women's health, women's sexuality. I think there is a sort of sense that you want to back it up. You know, it is about women's health. It is about women's sexuality. It is about feminism. And it is about all these complicated notions. But I suppose the title, yes, is quite confronting. But I think probably necessary, you know, we do need to call a spade a spade or a vagina a vagina and a vulva a vulva. So I think that it is necessary. And also it sort of does get to the point that the book is about the basics in a way. You know, it's about starting with the basics and starting with the basic anatomy and how that will allow us to have more nuanced and more complicated discussions if we at least kind of know the reality of female anatomy. But yeah, I mean, my family have been very, very, very nice about it. But they have said, you know, they have had that sort of reaction when when somebody says, what's your daughter up to? And my dad <laughs> has to tell a colleague about vagina or re-education. There is squeamishness still. And even I have that, you know, I was saying recently that my dad had said, we got these tote bags and they have vagina, Lynn Enright, and then on the other side, vaginas in formation. And I had taken a picture and sent it to my family and my dad got back to the family WhatsApp and said, oh, I won't be taking that to Tesco. And I was like, Dad, you know, God, you're really going to have to get more progressive and and that kind of thing. And then I had to take the bag out to Tesco in London. And then I started to feel a little bit embarrassed, you know, because actually going around with something that says vagina on it does provoke a reaction. But I think probably an, an important reaction and an important conversation to have. One of the interesting things that I found about the book was, I think, in the initial chapters when you were talking about young people and young girls specifically, and how now more and more sex education, although not even nearly enough, is focusing on giving kids the right language for their anatomy. A friend of mine's a primary school teacher, and she told me about, as part of the new, quote unquote new, I'm, I'm not sure how new, in Ireland curriculum, they have to give kids an education in their anatomy, specifically so that if anything untoward happens, they'll be able to give that language. And she told me that when they asked the little boys and little girls, I think she taught baby infants, so they were five or six. And when they asked them what their names were, she said the boys all had myriad, like my Winky, my Willy, my Mr. This, my, I mean, Gas, like, you know, all these random names that boys call their their Willies lol. But she said that the girls didn't have any and they just kind of went my bum or maybe my front bum. 
And that was it. And she said as well that she got an interesting reaction from the parents that the following day, one of the parents came in and said, you know, Annabelle or whoever came home yesterday with some very interesting words. And we're just wondering what's next. Like, well, we're not going to be teaching them about blowjobs. It's fine. Like that was just that was that. But do you see this book as being an educational tool or, you know, who do you think it's for? Because as I was reading it, I was going like I was finding it really interesting and I learned loads. But I was also going, I would really love to give this to 15 year olds and 16 year olds, men and women. Who who did you have in mind as you were writing it? Yeah, I think I probably had young women, so kind of 16 to to 30. Then as I was writing it, I started to realise, you know, I was 34 when I was writing at 35 now. And I started to realise that there's lots of stuff that I hadn't known until I literally wrote a book about vaginas. So I thought, actually, I think that this can go beyond 30-year-olds into, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, on and on and on. And then also, since I've published it, there have been people saying, you know, I think that men and boys could find this really useful. People I know who have sons have, have said, I think I'd like my son to read this when he's 16. And people with husbands and boyfriends and brothers have said, I'd like them to read this. And actually men have, have approached me and said the same thing. I went for coffee with somebody and he said, I really want to read it because my sister was telling me about having her period recently. And this guy is gay. And so, you know, he hasn't had much to do with women's bodies. And he said, my sister was telling me about having her period and she was explaining about having to go on the pill to try and manage the symptoms of a period but how that had had its own side effects and he just suddenly realised that he didn't know anything about this and he didn't know that you know how women have to manage their gynaecological and reproductive and sexual health in a way that perhaps men don't necessarily and he said you know so I really want to read this book so I can get an insight into my sister and my friends and all my loved ones who are women and their bodies but yeah to come back to your earlier point about the names that we have for for vulvas I think yeah there's an absolute dearth of names definitely with young kids as well you know and then I do think that has really serious ramifications obviously in the way that you know your friend if you're safeguarding children and you need to be able to explain to a health worker or a guard or a teacher what has happened to you in a certain place and if you don't have the vocabulary for that that's really serious and then on and on and on you know I think that if you don't have the vocabulary, if you don't have the words for something, it is going to be neglected and overlooked. Have you been following the conversation between Jen Gunter and this guy Paul Bullen on Twitter? It's the most amazing, spectacular thing. There was a piece in The Guardian where women were talking about their vulvas and how they felt about their vulvas. And it was accompanied by, was it photographs or illustrations? I kind of, it was photographs of their vulvas. And this guy, Paul Bullen, responded and said, I think you mean vagina. And I did see somewhere that you were talking about, I think maybe maybe in the very intro that you were like, despite the fact that this is called vagina, it's really about vulvas and the whole area. And I guess for anybody listening who doesn't really know the difference, could you give us like a very rudimentary intro? Sure. So... The vagina is the muscular tube, basically, that goes from the vaginal opening up to the cervix and the uterus. So the vagina is inside and then the vulva is kind of the outside area and it includes the clitoris and the labia and the urethral opening, the vaginal opening and the vestibule. So the vulva is kind of the whole thing. And I think we have been really awkward in saying vulva and I was until I started writing this book and I had thought that you know well you can say vagina I mean it you know what's the difference vagina vulva it's all the same and actually I think that you know there is a sense that when we call 
in a vagina, we're forgetting about the rest of the vulva. So we're not naming the clitoris, which is obviously how most women orgasm or orgasm most strongly. So I think that there is actually a sly minimising of women's sexuality when we call it the vulva rather than the vagina. And I think that can be something quite interesting to come back to kids, you know. I think that we are still squeamish about if a if a little girl sort of, you know, finds her clitoris when she's looking at her own body and asks what that is. I think that a lot of people would still be really squeamish to give her that information because we're still much more uncomfortable about female sexuality, even at a really young age. There was something that struck me as I was reading it about when you talked about, I think it was when it was going through the history of female genital mutilation and clitoridectomy, mm. when you were saying that there has been history of three and four year olds who have been, say, found masturbating by their parents, brought to the doctor and the doctor has performed this as a way of curing this hysteria. And something kind of struck me about it when I was thinking about kids and sexuality, and I guess Whenever we talk about kids and sexuality, and it's definitely a fault of our sex education system, we talk about them saying no and what you shouldn't do. But we never talk about things that might be pleasurable to kids. But at the same time, there's a kind of a a discomfort around talking about that because we don't want to be going, yeah, you should all be having sex at seven. Do you know what I mean? Was that something that you grappled with? Were those kind of aspects difficult to write about? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert because I'm not an expert on sex education or, or childhood. But I suppose I do look at the Dutch system of sex education and they they seem to have it all figured out. And they definitely seem to have a better sex education than the majority of countries in Europe and beyond. And I think they just begin at a very non-judgmental and clear place so they will tell kids you know the correct terms for their anatomy and I suppose there is this sense that oh it's 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 wrong to tell children what things are for it's coming back to that point about the clitoris that all you have to say is you might find that pleasurable to touch and you can say that to a child but it still feels really controversial I think to say that but actually if, if you break it down it's not and I do think that when I talk to women so many of them had had really shitty sexual experiences for a really long time in their teens and in their 20s. And a lot of them would say that that had something to do with the sex education they received, because we talk about it in very negative terms. And then we also sort of foreground the male sexual experience because we want to, you know, it's about a lot of the time reproduction. So a man orgasms too, you know, and their sperm and that and that's kind of what we say is the point of sex in sex education. I don't know if you've seen the Michael Jackson documentary that came out a couple of days ago. I know you've been busy. So and it's four hours long leaving Neverland. And it, well, I mean, it's being called the Michael Jackson documentary, but it is in fact a documentary about these two men who were sexually abused by Michael Jackson and their experiences of it. And something that really struck me when I watched that, and I think it was very much in the forefront of my mind when I was reading your book, was the idea that if we don't name sexual pleasure for children if all we do is say that's private that's down there that's for you you know you shouldn't talk about it you know nobody should touch it we don't give them the language to talk about when something feels pleasurable but also wrong because like one of the things that they talk about was like having these moments of intimacy with Michael Jackson their quote-unquote best friend and that because parts of it felt pleasurable 
they felt this guilt because they kind of knew it was wrong, but they also didn't have the language to say that. And I think a lot of the time, like not equipping kids with the skills to talk about their anatomy just does them such a great disservice. And then also, like as women, as you said, like a lot of my early sexual experiences would have been, yes, about like it's successful sex if he comes. You know, there's that terrible movie with Josh Hartnett is 40 Days and 40 Nights where he fakes an orgasm and the absolute horror of it. Whereas for women, I don't think anybody's ever been horrified at me faking an orgasm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, you know, and I say in the book that I think in a lot of society there is an expectation or even something like a hope that the first time a girl or woman has sex, it won't be good. It might be painful for her. And I feel like we're not comfortable with with young women's sexuality. And and yet to come back to the childhood point, I think that's exactly it, that, you know, these things are really, really complicated and they're really complicated for the individual. They're really complicated for society. But if we start with the basics and the basics of naming anatomy and equipping children with basic information, then I think we allow ourselves to open up those much more complicated subjects. A lot of this book is imbued with your own experiences and your own experiences of your body, your sexuality, your periods, your attempts to get pregnant, your abortion. And there's a point that's made quite late in the book, but I think anybody reading it will kind of have come to that conclusion as well, is that a lot of the time as a society, we need stories in order to invest in a situation. But I do think there's a very specific gendered aspect to it that we only believe women if they have a story to back it up whereas men can say you know I think that we should go for this kind of tax on this person without telling a story about how they once needed a medical card do you know what I mean yeah absolutely I think that's that's a really good point I tell my stories a lot in the book and I speak about other people's stories because I do think it is a really powerful way to get a point across And yet, I also believe that nobody should have to tell their stories to get basic human rights, but it feels like we do. And I suppose that Repeal the Eighth campaign was a really clear example of all of that. So, you know, women told their stories and that was probably the most influential thing in the whole campaign was people hearing women's stories of having to travel, women's stories of, you know, really horrific stories of pain and heartbreak. And I really do think that that, changed people's minds. And so I'm incredibly grateful to every woman who shared her story during that period, while also recognising that women shouldn't have to share their stories. And I suppose for somebody like me, who I am a, a writer and a journalist and sort of telling stories is what I do. And telling my own story is also what I do. I don't have a major problem with that. So I did feel that I should tell my story in a way because I suppose I hoped that people would feel a little bit, little bit less alone. Like uh, I do feel that that's another reason stories can be really useful. Is that if you read a story that you identify with, you do feel quite supported and understood. And I wanted people who read the book to feel that way. Yeah, it's interesting, and I mean that's obviously a very positive thing because I was going to ask essentially if you had any reluctance to share your own story. I recently listened to an episode of In Good Company with Otega Uagba, whose name I'm probably absolutely butchering, and she was interviewing Dolly Alderton about her book, Everything I Know About Love. 
And Dolly had said that she's been on this mega book tour, like her book has been incredibly successful. She's been on a tour for, I think, about a year speaking about the book. And she essentially said that she never wants to write about herself ever again because she's really, really sick of talking about herself. And I know that you're in the kind of initial stages of publicising your book. Do you sense that that's coming? Like, you know, are there any moments where you've been like, oh, God, I've given this person permission to ask me about this incredibly personal aspect of my life, you know, whether it's on radio or in a podcast. And have you had any moments where you've gone, oh, shit? I don't really think, oh, shit, but I definitely do think. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Oh, okay. Yes, I, I have opened myself up to talk about subjects that are traditionally really taboo, I suppose, still, you know, like infertility, abortion, even periods, those are really taboo subjects. And yeah, to have to kind of talk about them all the time is quite intense. And yet, I feel like for me personally, it's not that big a deal. I'm quite a chatter. I'm not that private person. So I don't have a major problem with it. And I do feel like we need to have those conversations. And if there are people who are open to having them, then I think that could be helpful, you know. And it is it is strange when you start to talk about these things, you do get a lot of messages. You know, I had an article recently about IVF and about the IVF provision in the UK because it's based on a postcode lottery there, the way that the funding is distributed. So you might be entitled to three rounds of IVF if you live in one borough and no rounds of IVF if you live 10 miles down the road. Obviously here, IVF isn't available for free, but in in the UK it can be. So I wrote about that, but I did touch on personal experience and I just was inundated with people telling me about their experiences. And I suppose I just find that really useful and helpful and that people can help help each other and that people just don't feel so alone because infertility is really common abortion is really common sexual assault and sexual harassment is really common and I suppose I just want people to feel like they can talk about those things and when we can talk about those things we can we can start to make things better for people as well but yeah I don't know if you ask me in kind of a year's time you know maybe I'll I'll be writing a book about something that is absolutely not to do with me uh, I'll see the IVF thing is so interesting because I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday so I recently went through a breakup and I was talking to her about children basically and about whether or not 
I will practically be able to have children. I'm 34 now. So I was kind of trying to work out, even if I meet someone tomorrow, I probably wouldn't want to have to get kids for like a year and a half, two years. At that point, like I've had testing that shows that I have a really low egg count. Now, I know that doesn't mean anything because I could have one really determined little egg that just happens to meet a really determined little sperm. Amazing. And she was asking me, would I freeze my eggs? And I was saying no, because of my history of depression and anxiety that I was like, I'd have to go on Clomid. I'd have to take certain drugs that I know could could affect my brain chemistry. And I'm not willing to take that risk with my health. And one of the things that you mentioned in the book is the research done on the male pill, the male contraceptive pill has pretty much been stopped because men found side effects such as acne, mood swings, depression. I mean, is that something like... As you were right, because because as I was reading that, I was getting this absolute like red mist of rage. Was that something that shocked you, or was that something you knew before? Because I mean, obviously, when you're interviewing women for the book, like, are there any women out there who have taken the pill and never had a side effect that you know of? Okay, so a couple of questions in there. I think that about the pill, I think you know there are some women who find a contraception that really really works for them after you know perhaps trying a few. But yeah, I do think that there is an increasing awareness of how the pill has affected us in lots of different ways. And I think that's why, you know, apps like Natural Cycles or Period Trackers have become increasingly popular. And, you know, I think that whether people are using them for contraception or not, I think also people do want to understand the role that hormones play in their body and in their mental health. You know, I think that that makes complete sense. You know, it comes back to the more we can understand about our bodies, the more empowered we are in in lots of different ways. And then, yeah, to talk about the the male thing, both in terms of fertility and contraception, I think that the male body is seen as the sort of default body. That's what a body is, whereas a woman's body is seen as sort of defective. And that belief has been there since the very, very beginning, really, and, and continues. And also, I think when it comes to fertility, we speak a lot about female infertility and about age. And that's been the major conversation among my friends, I think, is about sort of leaving it too late or whatever. And that, of course, is is a major concern. But there's lots of other factors that affect fertility. And I think, you know, I didn't when I first started to write the book, I didn't really think that we should be teaching fertility in schools or I, or I did. I did think it, but I, I, I was worried about it or concerned about it because I thought it might pile even more pressure on women. But actually, if we speak about fertility in really clear and really clear terms that look at it from all genders perspective, then I think it's a really useful and necessary thing to do. I think that children and teenagers should get a fertility education because at the moment our our conversation around it is not very sophisticated. The kind of layperson's understanding of fertility and infertility is, is not sophisticated. So I do think we need to have much, much more conversations about that. I often think if, I mean, if I could go back, well, like loads of things, but if I could go back, I often think, that now, like if I had had a child at 17, at the time, it would have felt like my life is over. But now I'm like, be grand. I'd have a 17 year old. I'd be like getting on with my life. My child would be going to college. 
be perfect and then I could begin my life anew you know what I mean yeah I mean I guess that is the thing and I suppose that is I when I was talking to somebody about sex education you know she was saying she's an expert in the UK on sex education and she was saying yeah we should be empowering people to make these decisions about whether you want kids and when you want kids but I think in in our culture, a lot of the discussion is, you know, you absolutely don't want want a child. Having a baby would be the worst thing that could ever happen to you until you turn this like magic age of like 28, 29. And then having a baby is, is the best thing that could happen to you. And then you have to want a baby. So, yeah, our conversation around women, women's bodies and women's pregnancies and giving birth is all a bit strange and we sort of try and try and control really the age and the way in which that happens absolutely let's talk about your career for a second outside of the book I know you've been working as a journalist in London for years now kind of freelance and you've been in house at the pool and then freelance again and working on your book what has that been like I guess for anybody listening who might be a journalism graduate who might be thinking because I know when I graduated I did think Oh, maybe I'll go to London, right? And then I got a job working in production at the Irish Times and I was basically like, I've made it now. I've made it in Ireland and I'm never going to leave because people know my name now and this is great. You know what I mean? Whereas London felt like you'd go over and you'd be this little old Irish, you know, going, hey, can I write a piece for your magazine? But what was that like for you? Because you've been like really, really successful at it, not to like blow smoke you know what I mean thank you very much um yeah I mean that does I guess success is a is a weird one and you know you always feel strange about being either less successful than than you than you want to be or than other people think you are but thank you very much um yeah I lived in London and then I came back and worked here and then I went back to London and I suppose yeah you are small fish in a big pond and I think that suits some people it suits me because, you know, you always feel like if you mess up, there's another opportunity or if the place that you work closes down, which has happened. So I wasn't at the pool when it did close. I had already moved on. But I was before that I was at a website called Never Underdressed and that closed while while I was there. And it was a really devastating day to go into the office and to be told, you know, this doesn't exist anymore. You're all being made redundant. And that hurts and it's it's confusing and it's upsetting. And that's the reality of digital media. The last two places I've worked at no longer exist. And that's scary and strange. And yet London is a place where there are loads and loads and loads of opportunities. It's a massive economy. Things are always changing. Things are always opening. So that for me gives me energy to, you know, kind of keep on keeping on. So that's great. I do love coming back here as well. And I love doing bits, bits and pieces here. My friends and I, we tried to, we tried to start this portmanteau name, Dublin. So the, <laughs> the Dublin London life, it hasn't caught on. Nobody uses the phrase. It's, it's not a cool phrase, but we, we continue to use it. And so if I could do that, I would, I would really like to do that, you know, because obviously here it has this brilliant new writing and literature scene. And I suppose that there is a, a freedom that comes with being here. And then I think there's also a freedom that comes with being in London. And for the first few years in London, you know, it does feel really anonymous. So you can walk around the streets and, and nobody knows who you are. But then eventually, if you live somewhere long enough, you do start to bump into people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I'm probably in London for 
for the long haul, probably. I mean, I don't know if my mom's listening in. She she might be disappointed to hear that, but we, but we'll see. I think that's a funny thing about being Irish, that no matter where you go or how long you're there, there's always a kind of a 10%, oh, will I, you know, will I come home? Like, my sister's been in the States. Well, my sister's been gone for, God, 20 years now. Oh, my God, that's actually, I've never thought about that before. She left, I think, when she was about 19. She went to, she's a fashion designer. She went to Milan, then Paris, then New York. Dallas and now she's in Fort Wayne which is really shit for shopping for me um, but there's always a question of oh I'd kind of like you know when she comes home at Christmas she's like I'd love to be here and then she goes back and she gets shit delivered in like an hour from Amazon she's like I'm grand I'm staying here it's fine but I do think that is always the question when you're Irish because we have such a strong community feel I think there's always a like oh maybe maybe I'll go home like it's nice and all my friends are there and everybody's so Irish especially around the humour and just getting people but I suppose London's less different than the States. What's next? Do you have a plan for another book? Mm, yeah, interesting. I, I have been suddenly in the last couple of nights, I have been, that's been creeping back into my head because it, it, it has been such a an intense few months. I wrote this book really quite quickly. My publishers turned it around very quickly because we knew that this was something that people wanted to talk about at this time. So it's all been a bit of a whirlwind and now I need to sit down and figure that out. Thank you for uh, pointing that out. Yeah, what's next? I'd really like to write some fiction, but I don't know if I can write fiction. Um, I've never, I didn't even grow up like writing stories. When when the teacher in primary school said, you know, you've got an hour to write something, I always wrote factual stuff or little sort of opinion pieces <laughs> as, a, as a young kid. That was kind of always what I did and that's still what I do. But I have this kind of, I have a story I'd like to tell and I also have a desire to try out fiction. So I would like to do that. But that will be something that I do probably, you know, in my spare time. I think there's a lot more to be said and done about women in the world. I'm quite interested in women at work at the moment and where feminism and capitalism <laughs> exist alongside each other and, and how that works. And yeah, just... I, keep on talking about vaginas as well. I think that there's some really exciting things happening around period poverty mm-hmm. and around conversations about fertility and infertility. And I do think that what I learned from writing this book is that these conversations bubble up, you know, at the moment, it feels like a great time to be talking about vaginas. There are lots of other books doing it. And there was that TV show 100 Vaginas in Channel 4 quite recently. And we are in this place where we want to talk about it. But we've been in this place before at other times. And then it's faded. So I think that we need to keep really vigilant, you know, that in the 70s and 80s, there was great work done by feminists about educating women about their bodies and then yet I felt like if that had happened in the 70s and 80s nobody had passed that on to me really so I think we just need to keep on keeping on when it comes to vaginas but I do think it's quite interesting the whole you know it's just been International Women's Day and I think there was this year more than most a discussion around the fact that brands do piggyback on that day and my friend Marisa Bate tweeted something really good about, you know, she was getting, she's a journalist and she was getting a lot of press releases from companies about their 
International Women's Day water bottle or T-shirt or whatever. And she says, you know, if you get one of those press releases, ask that company, what are you doing for women who have experienced domestic violence in your workplace? Do you offer them unpaid leave? What about your maternity leave policy? What about your childcare policies? Is there a crash in your office? Because those are the things that actually really help women and will help us get inequality as opposed to t-shirts and water bottles so yeah I think that there's a lot to explore there in in lots of different ways where can people find you or what do you want to plug aside from your book vagina a re-education which is available now on amazon and in all good bookshops uh well I write for a variety of places grazia refinery 29 l online yeah a bunch of different places and I suppose that you can find my work in those places but you can find me via twitter and instagram and you can just search Lynn Enright. L-Y-N-N-E-N-R-I-G-H-T all one word on both those platforms Lynn thank you so much for taking the time to come on How To Be Sound Thank you so much for having me Thanks a million Thank you so much for listening to this episode of How To Be Sound I will leave links to Lynn's Twitter some of her work on vaginas and her vagina links to her book below there will be affiliate links if you don't want to give me any commission do not click on them um thank you so much for listening if you'd like to become a patron you can do so at patreon.com slash rosemary mccabe that's rosemary mccabe with an a in my mac you will get exclusive writing you'll get mini episodes of the podcast you will get money diaries once a week and a whole lot of other special oh you'll get to be part of my book club where every six weeks or so i take people out for pizza and we talk about the book we've read the last one we read was car and McCullers, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter and the next one is a secret so you have to join the Patreon to find out all about it. Thank you also to my producer Liam Garrity who is a radio genius and you will find his podcast Meet Your Maker at meetyourmaker.ie and you can follow him on Twitter at Liam underscore Garrity. You can follow his work there. He does a lot of different work for RTE. He produces different podcasts. He's just a great all-rounder. I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to leave me a review or rate How To Be Sound on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast and also helps give me a little boost in the charts. Thank you so much for listening and you'll find another episode of How To Be Sound in two weeks. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.